Hello, it's Alyssa Milano, and I can't wait for you to read my new book, Sorry Not Sorry. It's a collection of essays where I share my unapologetic thoughts on life, culture, activism, and motherhood. You'll learn some things about me that I know you've never heard before and share in my story as an activist. This book is such a big part of my heart, and so are you, and thank you for that. Sorry Not Sorry is available now everywhere books are sold. Hi, I'm Alyssa Milano, and this is Sorry Not Sorry. The pandemic has been devastating for everyone in America, but especially for women. We've seen our economic power set back years, maybe even decades, by the changes to the labor market since the start of COVID. To discuss, I've invited Reshma Sujani on the show. Reshma is an attorney and activist who founded Girls Who Code and the Marshall Plan for Moms. She's also the author of the soon-to-be-released book, Pay Up the future of women and work, and why it's different than you think. We uh, know that women bring home just 77 cents on the dollar that uh, men are made, and we looked at, in particular, U.S. Census Bureau data that compared full-time, full-year working men and women. The gender wage gap existed before the coronavirus, but experts say this pandemic overburdens women and deepens inequality. I think it is elevating issues that we've always known are important. One of the things that we've been seeing is that women, and especially women with young children, have remained on the sidelines. That opportunity stems from everything being up in the air due to the pandemic and the chance to kind of rewrite the script. Part of that effort's on Capitol Hill, and it's called the Marshall Plan for Moms. Hi, I'm Rashma Sajani. I'm the author of the book, Pay Up. I am fighting to finally make workplaces work for women. Sorry, not sorry. Reshma, thank you so much for being with us. And I think before we get into the Marshall Plan for Moms, I'd love for you to just tell my listeners a bit about you and your background. So first and foremost, I'm the daughter of refugees. Uh, My parents were expelled by Idi Amin in 1972. They both showed up uh, wearing shorts and T-shirts in the 1970s to Chicago, Illinois, because they had never seen snow before. And my mom worked as, my father worked as a machinist in a plant. My mother sold cosmetics, even though they were both trained engineers. And I always admired their struggle and like the fact that they lost everything. And they came to a country where they didn't have any friends. They, had any, they didn't have any family. They had lost literally everything. And so I grew up with my father reading me these incredible stories about like Dr. King and Mahatma Gandhi and Eleanor Roosevelt. And so I, I like led my first march when I was like 13 years old. I was always a fighter and left the Midwest, got out of there as fast as I could, went to law school, graduated $300,000 in student loan, you know, thought I'd get a job at one of those fancy law firms. And I'd like pay off that student loans in a year or two, and then I could go change the world. And it didn't happen that way. And I found myself, you know, waking up in my early thirties, like in a life I didn't want. 
in this job I hated on a trading floor working as a corporate lawyer. And I'm like, how the hell did I get here? And I just quit. And I had always been involved in politics. And so I decided I was going to run for office. And I basically primaried a 19-year incumbent in New York City. I did what Ocasio did, except 10 years earlier, and I lost and she won. But it was so freeing. I was the first South Asian woman to ever run for United States Congress. I got my ass kicked like it wasn't even close. But it was a big aha moment for me because I learned that failure doesn't always have to break you. And it really freed me from thinking about like, what are all the things that I've talked myself out of that I should do? And it, it's what led me to start Girls Who Code, like an organization to teach girls to code when I didn't know how to code and I didn't bother to learn. So like that failure just set out, set off a life of like troublemaking and hustle and change making and just following that. Can we not call it a failure? Because I don't feel like, I feel like anytime you have an aha moment, even if it comes from some place of struggle, I don't think that's failure. I think that's the part of your life that was already predestined to be that you have to find. I mean, it's a gift, right? Like even in this moment, Alyssa, right? I've been through a lot in my life and I know you have too. And even in this moment, in the middle of the global pandemic, having all of those struggles, those heartaches, those mis more miscarriages than I can count, working since I was 12 years old to help pay the bills, whatever, all of that in this moment has been such a gift because it's helped me with resiliency and strength and perspective. I remember having a conversation with my therapist when the, when the pandemic hit and I had, you know, because I was sick very early on and then got over it. And I was well enough to speak to my therapist, which obviously is a great privilege and something that I cherish that time for myself. But I remember him going, how are you expecting me? Because I've always had mental health struggles with anxiety. And I think he expected me to be like, well, I'm falling apart. And I was actually like, I'm okay. And he's like, you are like, what do you think that stems from? And I said to him, because everyone else is not okay. So they're finally understanding what it feels like to be me, to look around and be like, yeah, see, I told you it's all a fucking disaster. Now do you believe me? <laughs> and I feel like that resilience that I, I think everyone has their own struggles. And I think that growing up first generation American like you do or did must have come with your own set of struggles. It's funny because my my best friend is Palestinian first generation American and he tried so desperately to fit in to be American and he sort of ignored a really big part of the generational trauma that he was holding on to because in his eyes, he had just fought so hard against his past in order to fit in. And I'm wondering if you felt any sort of need or desire to just seem American. Absolutely. I mean, I honestly think it was three years ago where I stopped if I went into Starbucks saying that my name was Maya instead of Reshma because I didn't want to like have to repeat it. You know, growing up in the 80s, like my father changed his name from Mukun to Mike. Oh, my God. Same thing with Allah's father. Allah's father called himself Mike. Yeah. My dad to this day signs his card, Mike. He assimilated. When we initially arrived in the United States, nonprofit and faith-based organizations assisted us with our initial resettlement. 
in order for us to adjust to a new country with new customs and a new language. And I interpret their actions as well-intended and compassionate. But in looking back as an adult, I see how these well-meaning acts can erode over time and cause us to question ourselves and who we are. We didn't speak the language at home, you know, all of it, besides religion and Hinduism. But they really tried to, quote, fit in, you know, from the Taco Bell to the Pizza Hut to all of it. And so I wanted to be white until I was in middle school. Like, I used to be mad when I went to the Kmart and I couldn't find that keychain with my name on it. Like, I wanted that keychain. And it wasn't until, honestly, I got beat up because uh, a girl called me a haji, which was a derogatory name for a brown person. And I literally got up, beat up in the schoolyard and realized, oh, I'm not white. And I never will be. And I have to start embracing my, my identity. And that was when ninth, 10th grade, I started making friends, Indian friends. I started finding myself. I started my activism. And it was just a different perspective. I remember one day early on as a kid, we lived in like this Midwest community and our house would get like teepeed and spray painted, go back to your own country. And I remember this morning, I'd walk outside and, my, and the side of our house had gotten spray painted, go back to your own country. And I saw my dad literally cleaning it up with Clorox. And I think he was like humming. And in his mind, like this racial hate was the tax that you paid as an immigrant to be in this country. Whereas I looked at him and I was like, I will never be like, him. I will never be him. And I do think that like, Growing up first generation, it's like you see these very two different paths of how you're going to like navigate yourself in this world. And I think most of us had these parents that never complained, never fought, never felt like they had a right to anything except gratitude and that it just came with the territory. How did you perceive the American dream? I perceived it as education and working hard and getting into Yale or Harvard or like being accepted. And for me, I was definitely one of those kids growing up. All my friends are still like in Schaumburg, Illinois. I would had big eyes and I just, I, there was stuff I had to do. I was always pulled to get out. And so I knew that my ticket out was through education and through getting really good grades and going to good schools and then doing my thing. And so that was always like what I pursued. And I think my parents had a complicated relationship with it because when you're like Indian, you're supposed to be a doctor, a lawyer, or an engineer. You're supposed to get married by the time you're, you know, 23, 24. You're supposed to be a housewife and maybe have a job, but really your first obligation is to your family. That's making it like that success. And my life was not pointing in that direction at all. You know what I mean? And that really terrified my parents for a long time. It took them a lot of moments of being, you know, disowned, you know, not long stretches of time of them not speaking to me, you're not accepting what I was doing, not supporting what I was doing, and having to really navigate the world on my own. So you graduated from law school, and you started working in a law firm. I want to know what that experience taught you about women in the workplace. It taught me that we're not equal. But even though my half of my law class was female, and maybe even half of like the internship class that my law firm was female, when I looked at the partnership, or I looked at who was in charge and who was running things, 
there weren't any women. And when there were women, they didn't have kids. They didn't have families. When you walked around the law firm partners' offices, I didn't see pictures of people's family. I didn't hear people say, hey, I got to jump off this call for a minute. I got to go pick up my kid at soccer class. It was as if they didn't exist. This other identity of being a mother just didn't exist. You could have it all in one area of your life, but we are asked to believe that having it all means having a career and all of the other obligations we have as women who have families. And in your forthcoming book, Pay Up, you talk about the difficulties women face embracing both home and professional lives, and you describe it as the big lie. Tell my listeners what you mean by that. Well, I think women are waking up to this reality, right? That corporate feminism has sold us, which I call the big lie. And it means that like having it all is nothing more than a euphemism for doing it all. It doesn't matter if we break glass ceilings and we succeed in our careers. And it's like, we've been told, all you have to do is dream big, lean in, get a mentor and everything is going to be good. And the truth is it didn't matter how many leadership courses we took. It didn't matter how many hours that we put in. It didn't matter what we did. The reality was, is that we participate in a workforce that was never built for us. And I talk about this in the book. It's been a hundred years ago. We were like, you couldn't work. And so from Rosie the Riveter, right, to Girl Boss, it has been the same narrative. You saw this contradiction in an understanding of women's aspirations for after the war, for their lives after the war. You saw that, again, corporate executives and government officials always were claiming that women were coming into the war industries for the duration of the war, and then that they would were expected to be delighted to turn their jobs back over to returning servicemen. That's always the assumption of those officials. For me, COVID really exposed something that I think I always maybe knew, but didn't want to admit. You know, I had spent the past decade of my life getting girls to code and going to every single tech company and saying to women, you can do this. You can have it all. You can get that corner office. You can build the next Facebook. You can build the next Microsoft. You can create the next algorithm to solve cancer and just focus on the prize, which was the express train to the corner office. In COVID, we all realized that, that was just bullshit. And for me, I had my second son, January 25th. So a few weeks after the world fell apart, I was going to be taking maternity leave. And I found myself having to go back to work, save my nonprofit Girls Who Code, take care of a newborn baby, and now homeschool my five-year-old. And when I looked at my Zoom screen, you know, my leadership team was all women. We were all just done. And like you, I got COVID early on, my liver failed, but I couldn't even pay attention to it because I was just driving and driving and driving. And I think a lot of us felt like when the schools open, we'll be fine. The schools didn't open. And in fact, they came up with this idea of like hybrid learning where we would have to log on our kids, right? At six, seven, eight, nine, while we maintained our full-time job. And the crazy thing, Alyssa, was they didn't even ask. 
we knew that 86% of domestic work was done by women, that women were going to be the ones to take care of the kids. And then you started seeing, right, these 12 million women that were pushed out of the workforce. And then on top of that, the great resignation. And no one said a damn thing. There wasn't a plan. I want you to tell the listeners about the great resignation, the 12 million women who left the workforce. I really want to paint this picture for those who have not connected the dots already. So it is 2020, January 1. Women are 51% of the labor force. Every feminist organization is literally celebrating. We have basically have like essentially gotten there. And then COVID hits and you saw the delicate balance, right? That now all these same women were not just trying to maintain their full-time jobs, but they had to homeschool their kids. Women tend to be more vulnerable in the labor market in general. Dr. Diana Pierce is a professor at the University of Washington and the director of the Center for Women's Welfare. According to data compiled by the center, more women are losing jobs because the industry shut down by the pandemic are heavily worked by women. They had to take care of their elderly parents. Many women found themselves in jobs that were automated because of loss because of COVID. So healthcare, education, technology, the vast majority of women were twice the rate of the men found themselves in jobs that were going to be automated. So here you have a situation where half of the daycare centers are shut down. Women, especially women of color, are being pushed out of the workforce because they're in these jobs that aren't pandemic proof. Schools are now shut down. Employers are basically saying, sorry, not sorry, your problem, not ours. And women are already underpaid because of the motherhood penalty. And we kind of collectively look at our situation and say, this is not working. And so we slowly exit the workforce or get pushed out. And many women at this moment, and this is again, September, October, November, December of 2020, the December 2020 jobs report comes out. All the jobs lost were women of color. And we're not talking like 82% of jobs. We're talking 100% of jobs lost. 100% of jobs lost are women and women of color. You start seeing the mental health havoc being put. I think at the beginning of the pandemic, maybe one out of nine mothers said that they had anxiety or depression. That number turns to seven out of 10. And so we are walking around and there's no support. And you start to realize how like the structures have always been broken. We live in a nation where there isn't affordable childcare. And so many moms relied on grandparents, aunts, uncles, daycare centers, schools, all of this is now shut down. And many of these women were found themselves in jobs in retail and healthcare where they didn't have paid leave and there wasn't working from home opportunity. So they're having to make unconscionable choices in terms of how do they care for their kids and how do they maintain their jobs so they can actually put food on the table. And again, there's no structure. There's no paid leave. So at a time in March when people are sick, you had to go to work or else you'd lose your job, right? Because we didn't have a society. The United States is the only developing nation that doesn't offer paid leave. And so without these forms of support, the entire foundation, again, Black women, 70% of Black women are not only the sole breadwinner, but they're the sole caretaker. 
And so we start to realize as a society that, oh, this isn't working. That's when I took out an ad that you signed and a bunch of incredible women and leaders signed that said to President Biden, like, what's the plan? Moms don't work for free. And for so long, America has treated mothers as its social safety net. We don't need social programs because we know that moms will actually step in and do double the amount of work. This is a huge issue and it's a very distinctly American issue. So we take out this ad saying, where's the plan? A couple months later, president announces his Build Back Better plan and we get some short-term paid leave. We announce the child tax credit, which were the payments that we have talked about and you wrote an op-ed about to mothers. And we start forming the basis of repairing some of this structure. It is almost two years since then and nothing's changed. Nothing's changed in government and nothing's also changed for mom. You still have 2 million women plus that are out of the workforce. The vast majority of them are mothers, right? You still have half the daycare centers that are shut down. You still have workplaces that are tepid about flexibility and side-eye you when your kid bumps into your Zoom call. You still have hourly workers that can't even get fired if they go to school to show up for a laptop because their kid needs to learn remote learning. We still have not bailed moms out. We've bailed out Delta. We've bailed out companies. We've bailed out the airlines, but we have not bailed out moms. And as mothers, we, to the detriment of our mental health, we are still showing up for our country and for our workplaces. My kid, he's in fourth grade and someone in the class was exposed and his classroom shut down for five days and had to, we went back to online learning for five days. More than anything, I just, I'm so sad for the kids right now because it's the instability and then you put on top of that the stress that moms have to face every single day to try to make it all work and keep the balls in the air that we're juggling. And I kept saying in the beginning of COVID, if nothing else, we need to come out of this better than we went into it. And I don't know if that is going to happen. I want you to explain the idea of unpaid labor to our listeners. It's a term we use a lot when we discuss women, but I'm not sure people really fully grasp the concept. Well, you know, the big aha of COVID was that 86% of women do the unpaid labor at home. So that's the laundry, the grocery shopping, the buying of the shoes. And it's a lot. And it's that cognitive labor that you do. Now, that is all the unpaid labor that actually has a value on it. We did a, we did a project with Oxfam, $800 billion of unpaid labor done by women across the world. And again, the number is about almost 86% of that work is done by mothers. It's almost two and a half jobs. I think in the past, we always thought of this women's issue as the nice issue to do or the side issue. But now the pandemic has laid bare what our economy is built on the backs of. And our economies all over the world are built on the backs of women's unpaid labor. And now it is right here in our faces in our homes. The moms trying to keep help keep their kids online, finding a place for childcare for their child so they can get on a bus and go to work, helping care for the elderly, get them their prescriptions, get them food right now. 
So if we're going to build back as quickly as we possibly can from COVID-19, we have to look at this fundamental issue of caregiving. And so for so long, what we've been saying to women is if you lean in, if you get that mentor, if you get that sponsor, you will get that thing. But we haven't been accounting for also the unpaid labor that they do. And that fact that we don't have a quality there, and if you're a single mom, for, we don't have any structures there, you'll never get to a quality in the workplace because we don't have a quality at home or in society. And so it is really in that idea of unpaid labor in our culture, in our American culture, is very controversial, right? So a lot of how, like in a lot of nations, women receive or parents receive what they call a parent income. So in the UK, in Spain, India is talking about it right now. You have a child, you get a certain amount from the government every month that basically is essentially accounting for this unpaid labor that allows women to get cash so they can supplement and get the support that they need to focus on their, quote, paid labor. So the United States has been very resistant towards that idea uh, from the beginning. And you see this in some of the things that Manchin talks about right now that no parents shouldn't be compensated unless they're actually working. So it's this idea that motherhood's a choice. Childcare is your own personal problem. Anything that you have to deal with the way of like your family is your issue. Don't ask the government. Don't ask your employer. Don't ask your partner for help. You should do it all. And it's the way we have been operating And if you look at every single reflection from Murphy Brown to the Cosby mom to bad moms, every reflection of mother in our culture is this self-sacrificing martyr who does it all and doesn't complain and doesn't ask for help. Not on who's the boss. Our mom or Angela, the mom in the show, had her own business and she hired a dude to come in and do the laundry. I can't even, when I think back at how forward thinking that was, 1982, I'm so proud of that fact. You know, if you think about how you change this idea of like caretaking is not something that is distinctly female, and we raise a generation of men and boys who do want to be caretakers. And part of the reason why you have a childcare shortage right now is because 99% of the workers are women. So how powerful was that cultural narrative in shifting that idea of caretaking? It's teachers, it's nurses, across the board, the caretaking actual jobs are also predominantly held by women. I want to hear, tell everyone about your Marshall Plan for Moms. Yeah, so in January 2021, we take a full page ad in the New York Times, basically saying that we need a Marshall Plan for Moms. And essentially, that Marshall Plan is like, how do you get women back to work or rebuild workplaces so they finally work for women? And that idea is we need paid leave. We need affordable childcare. We need schools to open up safely. We need to retrain all these women who have lost their jobs because their jobs weren't pandemic proof. And we need the government to stand up, right? And put forth these policies once and for all. We put this out there. 
We get a handful of bills passed in Congress that are a testament to the fact that we need a plan. Legislators across the country, from California to New York, passed Marshall Plan for Mom Task Force. So like somebody is essentially there, sitting in government, being like, okay, New York City, how many women have dropped out of the workforce? How do we get them back? What are the levers we're going to pull? And literally start tracking how we start doing it and building it back better because the former structure wasn't working. And so we have been obviously pushing and advocating for these policies and not just in government, but in the workplace. And so I know you and I are both activists, right? We've been marching from the time we learned how to crawl, but I am really freaking fed up with Washington. And I can't just rely on a bunch of those men to do the right thing anymore. And so I feel like it is time to start figuring out the other ways and places we can get what we need. Businesses, companies from hourly workers to South, they don't work without us, period. And in the middle of the great resignation where there's a massive talent drain, pay for my childcare, right? If parents can't afford childcare, and if the only way our economy is gonna work is if people are back to work, then subsidizing childcare should be like what we think about healthcare. It should be a fundamental right. We have to start a movement to get companies to start subsidizing childcare. The second thing is every company should offer paid leave and they should mandate that men actually take it too. If we're going to get to gender equality in terms of that unpaid labor, we have got to start getting men to do more care work. And I think they want to do it. And it's interesting, Alyssa, you know, if you look at health studies, when men take their kids to school, when they make a meal, when they do laundry, they live longer. They don't have diabetes. They don't die of heart attacks. It's good for them too. And so what we haven't really acknowledged in society is the fact that how corporate policies have essentially exacerbated the gender equality at home. You talk to men and if they take more than 10 days off to take care of a baby when they come home, they get gaslit at work, get made fun of, right? They get criticized. And so that has to change. And that is a cultural change. And then finally, you know, we... And I know you've been doing a ton of work on this. We've been talking about the pay gap forever. And what we have to acknowledge is that there isn't a pay gap between childless women and childless men. The pay gap is between moms and dads. Today, working women in the U.S. typically earn 82 cents for every dollar a man makes. Mothers make just 75 cents for every dollar paid to fathers. And single mothers, they only make 54 cents for every dollar a married father makes. When we see a mom, we've seen this over the pandemic, and we see her caretaking, we think she's not committed, that she's not productive, that she's not going to perform well. So we pay her less, and we do it year after year. When we see a dad, he has a new kid, we're like, oh, we got to give him some more money. He needs some money to take care of those kids. It's a completely different perspective. And so solving the pay gap is literally an algorithm. It is an AI solution. There's no reason why any company in this day and age shouldn't have a pay gap anymore. And it's time for us to get really clear and say, well, we're not returning back to work until we're paid fairly forever. When I think about the generational difference between my mom and dad and the way David and I function, which is a true partnership. I mean, he gets up and makes the kids breakfast because I don't do mornings. He'll do laundry. I mean, it's going to be very interesting to see what our kids' generation looks like as far as that dynamic and how much they're really willing to compromise and sacrifice because they are watching us do it all. 
the payments to women get a lot of attention for your Marshall Plan. But I want to be very clear that that's not all it does. So can you tell us about some of the other initiatives that it would include? Yeah. And the payments got a lot of attention because this idea of paying moms really pissed people off. And that's why I said it. This idea of we should pay moms for their labor, unpaid labor, is just radical. And it shouldn't be radical. And I think engaging in that conversation is really powerful. We just There's just a study that came out a few days ago that showed that when poor women who get cash payments their babies are healthier. And so there's literally medical scientific evidence that it's good. And so there's all this evidence out there that you put money in the hands of women, it's a good thing. But beyond the payments, the book talks about, you know, nine, 10 things that companies can actually do to make workplaces work. So the first thing is about this idea of flexibility, you know, and predictability for shift work. If you work at a restaurant, if you work in retail and you're supposed to do the seven o'clock shift and You've arranged for childcare. You've done all the things. You show up for your seven o'clock shift and they can say, oh, sorry, canceled. You're out money. And so we have got to be offering hourly workers predictability for their schedule so they too can spend time with their family. That is not a radical idea. That is something that we should be implementing. We talked a little bit about paid leave. I think companies shouldn't just be like, yes, I offer paid leave. Well, who do you offer it to? And who takes it? And how are you incentivizing people to actually take it? And nations like Canada, Denmark, Norway, right? They literally have policies where you either, you know, it's like mandated. So we need to be shifting in that direction. We talked a little bit about rooting out the motherhood penalty, offering paid sick days, thinking about, again, how subsidizing childcare, thinking about all the ways that we can support families with their childcare needs. We've, again, workplaces weren't built for us. They were built for men. They were built for men who had a stay-at-home wife who was going to take care of everything. This whole genre, again, of like girl bossing and like the fast train to the corner office, when we got there and we were exhausted and depleted, we thought that something was wrong with us. For most of my life, I saw my kid an hour a day and I had pride in that. That's disgusting. But when I had miscarriages and I would go to a doctor's office and find out that I didn't have a heartbeat. I'd literally two, three hours later show up on a stage and give a speech for girls who code because I thought that was expected of me. We have been asked to be these ideal workers at the sacrifice of our motherhood. And that's not right. Well, it's an impossible, it's an impossible choice to make. And we shouldn't have to make impossible choices. And as I'm listening to you speak, I'm in my head. I know that there are trolls screaming at us right now. It's socialism. So I want to give you an opportunity to explain to them why it's important for government to do things like make sure childcare is affordable and that we eliminate the wage gap. Well, this is why you've had a lot of Republicans support the child tax credit. The child tax credit was one of the things done early on in the pandemic by Congress to help alleviate that financial strain for Americans. Of course, it lapsed at the end of last year when Congress couldn't come to consensus to extend it along with the rest of Biden's Build Back Better agenda. But now there is some renewed momentum here in Congress on the Republican side of the aisle. We have the lowest birth rate in the history of our nation. When you talk to young people today, they don't want to have kids because it's too expensive. So when you have a nation that doesn't have a rising birth rate, you lose your innovation, you lose your economic power. Bank of America CEO just said the other day, like, I can't find people because the birth rate's low. So we have got to, in some ways, save parenthood. 
And by doing that, we have to provide these benefits, you know, that make it affordable and doable. Because again, I think people look at us and they say, no, thank you. And I also think that we want to give people choice. And it can't just be about the gold standard is about working in the workforce. Part of what I talk about in pay up is that we have to create a world where you can move in and out of the workforce without penalty. You have a baby and you want to stay home for a couple of years. God bless you. But it's not right that when you want to go back, you lose 40% of your income. That's the average. So again, it's about our values. We talked about this earlier. Like what's scary about this moment is that you're like, what do we believe in? Do we believe in our kids? Do we believe in the, the women who have lost their lives or dreams or everything? What are our values? And this is a moment for us to stand up to our values. We're a country that cares about family values. I don't think this is a more family value ideal than this one. I think that if we're looking to other countries that have already done this all better, what do you think, knowing that, what do you think changes in America if we adopt these ideas and the Marshall Plan for Moms? Well, I don't think you have the same economic devastation. The UK is a great example of this. So they offer a parental income. They have much better benefits in terms of healthcare, childcare than we do. And they didn't have 12 million women leave the workforce. This hasn't happened. We're back where we were in 1989. We've lost the most amount of women in the history of our nation from our workforce. This is not happening across the globe in the same way. And it's not happening in nations that have these things. Childcare, affordable childcare, again, paid leave and cash payments to parents. So there's something about those policies that are providing a safety net when we have pandemics like this, or generally when families have crises, like someone getting sick or losing a job or some event, it doesn't take everybody over. So again, I think that these are nations that are thriving. And I think if we want to compete, if we want to continue to be the greatest nation in the world, these are the types of things that we need to be offering families. And finally, what gives you hope? What gives me hope is, I think women and children. I have the best, used to have the best job. I still have the best job in the world, founder of Girls Who Code, where I see these girls who just have so much hope. And like life is throwing them. You could take, you know, two trains and two subways to get to our Girls Who Code classroom to learn how to code, but you still want to like find a cure to cancer, COVID, do something about climate. And I'm seeing the same sense of like rage to power happen with moms right now. We're waking up. We're realizing that it doesn't have to be this way, that I don't have to do it all by myself, that I don't have to hold up half the sky. And I think we look at our kids, not just our daughters, but our sons too, and say, we don't want this for you. And I think that that gives me hope. And I, and I think the last piece of this is that that it doesn't have to just be about government, that we can make change and there can be other actors, whether it's the private sector, whether it's our own partners, right? That can help build the world that we want to see. I want to finish this fight once and for all, like I'm done. And I think that we have an opportunity in this moment of crisis to do it. And I, I see it in workplaces because for too long, we've been breastfeeding in closets. We've been not taking our kids to doctor's appointments and soccer games. We've been sacrificing our mental health and we've been fighting for the ring that we never got at the sacrifice of seeing our kids crawl, walk, talk, go to prom. And, and I don't think we need to live like that anymore. Well, I am right by your side in the fight. Please call on me if I could be of service. And you, Reshma Sujani, you give me hope. 
Thank you so much for all you do and for being a part of the podcast. Thank you, Alyssa. And thank you for all of your fight. You're one of literally the first people who are like, yes, I'm on board. What do you need? And you've used your power, your voice, your platform to lift up you know, this fight for moms. So thank you. Always. I'm always here. Unpaid care work is the kind of work that people do in taking care of each other and building up each other's capabilities. In particular, very young children, people who are sick, need a pretty significant amount of attention and care. And very often it is women who do this kind of work. The main characteristic of unpaid work is that it's not directly paid or remunerated. Now, in theory, this kind of work should be counted as part of GDP. For example, if you take a country like Argentina, the calculations that were done by feminist economists and statisticians give us a figure of about 7% of GDP. And in a much less developed country like Tanzania, it was even seen to be a much higher figure, like 63%. One study included also a case study of Switzerland. What was found out was if you added the unpaid care work that is done in Switzerland and you value it, it's almost as big as the banking and insurance industry in Switzerland. COVID is a tragedy. It's a tragedy for our world and our nation. It's a personal tragedy for the millions of families who have lost loved ones. And it's been an economic tragedy for American women. So many generations of women have fought so hard for access to and equity in the workplace. And this disease has done so much harm to all of the progress they won. Our economic power was low before the pandemic. Now, it's practically non-existent. And yet, we're doing the labor of this era. We're the ones at home with the kids. We're the ones doing the teaching when the kids can't be in schools. And we're the ones who are not getting paid for the new careers we've been forced to take on. Paying women who did the work of the pandemic is just smart policy. It's good for families, for communities, for local economies, and for the kids whose parents may still find themselves unable to put enough food on the table. That's especially true now that extended unemployment benefits related to the pandemic have expired. I know that lots of men, and it's almost always men, isn't it, will start whining about socialism. Well, boys, don't use words you don't understand, okay? I'm sure each of you returned your stimulus checks, right? Oh, no, you didn't? This isn't socialism. It's social policy that makes sense for our nation. Sorry if that hurts your feelings. Sorry Not Sorry is executive produced by Alyssa Milano. That's me. Our producer is Ben Jackson. Audio editing and engineering by Maciej Lewandowski. And music by Josh Cook, Alicia Eagle, and Milo Bugliari. Don't forget to rate, review, and spread the word. Sorry. Not sorry.